0: I'm here with Molly Crabapple, an artist and a writer, most well-known within Middle Eastern studies circles, as the co-author of Brothers of the Gun, a memoir of the Syrian war, co-written with Marwan Hisham. How are you doing, Molly? I'm doing
1: great. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well.
0: So I just wanted to know, how did you end up co-writing this book, Brothers of the Gun?
1: That is a long story. It starts in 2013 uh, when I first started uh, writing about the Syrian war and about uh, Syrian refugees. There was a small community of people on Twitter that would talk about the war together. Uh, Some were journalists, uh, some were analysts, some were Syrians living inside or outside the country. And there was one guy that I knew from this online community whose Twitter bio said that he was in Raqqa. And I just looked at him and I was like, Raqqa? Raqqa. That was, at that point, occupied by ISIS. So I started talking with this guy, Marwan Hisham, and at first just sort of, you know, speaking about the war, but then we became friends because I was studying Arabic at the same time, and he had the most extraordinary Arabic literary education. Someone, you know, who could pull up any classical poem to make any sort of sick joke at anyone's expense, and he he helped me a lot with learning it. Uh, Marwan and me became friends online and then after about six months of that I asked him one day if he had any photos of life in Roqqa. I was thinking just the sort of photos that you and me have on our cell phones maybe from before the war. I asked if I could draw them and Marwan told me no I don't have any photos but I can take some. And I said Marwan that sounds really fucking dangerous and he's like nah it's my hometown he totally dead up lied to me. And he went around and took the most extraordinary photos of his city uh, which were done specifically to counteract isis propaganda so photos of kids looking through the the trash for something to sell uh, photos of bread lines photos of an isis traffic cop uh, ogling women that sort of thing and he sent these to me and he wrote captions for them and i remember looking at those photos and thinking that everything in the world was to prevent this sort of communication from happening, everything about borders, everything about ISIS, about America, about the way that parts of the world are separated from each other, and yet there this was. We were doing art together that was also a crime together. I drew from his pictures, we published it together in Vanity Fair, and because it was so successful, uh, we repeated it twice from uh, Mosul, which was then occupied by ISIS, and from East Aleppo, which was then held by various rebel groups. And all the while, we were becoming closer and closer friends. And we were like, this project, this thing that we have, it's, it's too good. We can't just, you know, put it in a few articles that are going to be online and are going to disappear. We want to make something physical, something that lasts. And so we decided to do this book together.
0: It's amazing. How did you end up, like getting in this like twitter community of um people who are vocal about uh, the situation in syria as somebody who's not syrian yourself
1: well i had just kind of started reporting in 2012 i my first uh, big published article was actually about my arrest at the anniversary of occupy wall street and i think uh, like many people who were deeply involved in occupy wall street I uh, felt a connection to other movements that had happened in two thousand and eleven, uh, whether that was uh, the Indignados protests in Spain or uh, the occupation of Syntagma Square in Greece, or uh, various movements of the Arab Spring. Uh, this was something I think that people felt especially sharply because many activists, you know, from from Egypt, uh, from Tunisia, they came, you know, to occupy Wall Street and they met with people that were involved there, and so. Uh, after you know, occupy wall street was smashed and after i started writing i began to write about other movements i wrote about uh, spain i went you know went to spain i spent time you know in squats there and then a lot of my friends were who were journalists were writing about the war in syria and i had the opportunity to uh, go to the beqa valley in lebanon and also to tripoli in lebanon uh, for the new york times and to write about People uh, who were just dis- who were Syrians that had been displaced by the war, and when I met people in uh, those camps in the Bekaa Valley, I felt like I had no idea what to say to people because of the depth of betrayal by the world that had led to these amazing, you know, tough, smart people living in abandoned buildings in the winter and burning plastic bags for heat. Right, and so I suppose because because of that, I. I kept wanting to uh, go back and to speak more with refugees, and I started also volunteering uh, with Karam Foundation, which is an amazing uh, Syrian American-run uh, aid foundation that my friend uh, Lina Sordigiatar runs. And so, because I was writing about this, and because I was, you know, going to the border to do murals at like refugee schools and stuff, I followed people in this community on Twitter.
0: And I'm just curious, but how do you think that your experience informs? Uh, global solidarity in these revolutionary movements or these radical movements
1: I mean I don't know if i I always would feel vain saying that I was like informing other people I could speak about um, how my own ideas about global solidarity informed you know what I did. I think that borders are a deadly fiction uh, deadly because they're they're enforced with deadly force but fictional because they're recent developments and that many of the problems that are facing us don't obey national lines that easily. And I think that transnational cross-border solidarity is one of the only things uh, that can save us. Part of my experience in this is informed because, you know, I'm a Jew. And one of the only things that uh, saved my people from being wiped out was the um links that we made you know across borders that was what enabled us to escape it was what enabled you know resistance networks to you know be funded uh, links that weren't just because we were jews but also came because you know leftist activists right or trade unionists or you know socialists i also think that anyone looking at the way that wars play out or the way that other great upheavals like the mass displacement wrought by climate change play out cannot think that these are things that are neatly confined and siloed into borders. Uh, By the same token, though, uh, I think that there is often a tendency uh, by Americans to think that they know everything about a country that they've never been to, whose languages they don't speak, and who perhaps they don't even know anyone from. And I think that solidarity, it has to You know, one solidarity has to be led by the people who are actually affected by the conflict, right? The people who are actually experiencing it in their own bodies. And while solidarity should most certainly uh, be offered, it, um, you know, has to be done under, um, you know, yeah, under the leadership of the people who are living out the conflict.
0: Speaking on how native or indigenous people have to be the ones to, yeah, kind of push for their own freedom. How do you, as a Puerto Rican woman? Make of the very anti-colonial movement in Puerto Rico right now, um, and like, what is your take on it?
1: My God, so I um have a somewhat complicated relationship to my Puerto Ricanness. I uh, my father is a Puerto Rican studies professor and an astounding Puerto Rican studies professor. His whole uh, specialty is on the economics of colonialism. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I was lucky enough, right, to grow up in a home where. Uh, Marxism, where colonialism, where these were things that were, were spoken about all the time. It was not something I had to like, discover as an adult. Uh, but by the same token, you know, I did grow up in New York. Um, I speak como una gringa, <laughs> my Spanish. And while I visited Puerto Rico a lot when I was a little girl, uh, as an adult, I only started going back after, um, after Maria. In terms of what I think of uh, Ricky Renuncia and of sort of amazing moment that Puerto Rico is in. So Puerto Rico is a colony and it is a colony that, in my opinion, America has decided that there's no longer big profits to be extracted from. And they've decided to just take this fucking colony to the pawn shop and just like suck it uh, dry for, you know, blood and scrap. And that was the case before Maria. And about a year before Maria uh, Congress imposed something called the Fiscal Control Board on Puerto Rico, which is an unelected board that is imposing um, brutal, brutal austerity, Uh, just like, yes, sucking every drop of blood out of the country, austerity on Puerto Rico uh, to deal with its debt crisis. It's impossible to look at the complete devastation that happened after Maria without realizing that this was severely excavated by austerity that was imposed by the colonizer. Uh, By the same token, When a country is a colony, there's a very uh, sort of special type of person that decides, special type of local, uh, that decides to govern that colony, right, for the colonizer. It's not usually the best human. It's usually um, a sort of a local rich boy who who views the colony with contempt and uh, decides to, um, you know, steal as much as he can for himself. And that is very much what Ricky Rossello is. He's someone who'd never even held a job before, certainly not in politics, but whose uh, daddy was the governor. And his response to Maria was one of—and it's hard for me to even describe it. Like, I want to I describe an incident that Puerto Rican investigative journalists revealed, which was that Ricky Rosayo, one of his party operatives, stole a generator uh, after Maria from a shelter for, home, for displaced senior citizens— and instead brought it to a luxury restaurant where he was having a fundraiser. <laughs> and then when local Puerto Rican investigative journalists came and were like, why did you steal that generator that was, you know, saving the lives of senior citizens so that it could be, at, you know, for your fundraiser, local uh, thugs uh, working for this guy I threatened to beat them up. So this, this is sort of the, you know, level I think the Puerto Rican corruption, there's like two different types. There's like big corruption, which is the type of corruption that's being imposed by the metropole, where like you, um, you know, America gives contracts to people that are worth like a bajillion dollars and, you know, steals like a bajillion dollars. And then there's like little corruption, which is what the sort of local comprador class does, which is the like, let's steal the generator from the home from the senior citizens. And they kind of, you know, work hand in glove. Right. So that was sort of the state after Maria. However... After Maria, because people realized that there was going to be no help—not from the local government and not from the federal government—they realized they were alone. There was an extraordinary movement of uh, what they called centros de apoyo mutuo, which are mutual aid centers. Uh, these were places that uh, cleared the roads, that you know took care of the elderly, took care of the sick, uh, made communal kitchens, and the idea was to do a sort of uh, prefigurative politics because you know in Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans are always uh, told. Uh, that they're like stupid and lazy, and that's why America, America is supposed to be like daddy, and and daddy is you know going to come and take care of you because you're so stupid and lazy and you know incompetent. You can't do it for yourself. You know, 120 years of this, right? It you know gives you bad self esteem. But what people saw after Maria was that. Actually, no, they were strong. They were strong and they were smart and that they had each other. And the stupid, lazy one was actually, you know, the federal government, right? It was actually the colonizers and and their little local enforcers. It wasn't the Puerto Rican people. The Puerto Rican people were good. So after Maria, the um, Puerto Rican local government uh, engaged in a little orgy of corruption. Uh, The federal government also engaged in an even bigger orgy of corruption. A symbol of this was that there is this total like blondie gringa named Julia Kelleher. She is from Delaware. Uh, She's friends with Betsy DeVos, and she was appointed uh, by uh, Ricky as the uh, Minister of Education for twice the salary that Betsy DeVos gets, even though Puerto Rico only has 3 million people, right? And as the Minister of Education, she did two things. One was close as many schools as possible, so young families had to leave. And the second thing was cry on tape, and I mean cry like with tears, that people were being reverse racist to her because they protested the school closures. That's Julia. So um, she closed tons of schools. Lots of people had to leave the island because of it. You know, my friend's barrio didn't get uh, power for nine months. I didn't get water for six months. Uh, you know, things are really tough. And then about uh, two weeks before the whole Ricky Renuncia thing blows up, Miss Gringita Julia Kelleher is arrested by the FBI for stealing millions of dollars that were meant for Puerto Rican students, (laughs) Uh, which everyone knew that she had done, but you know, had never been proved before. Okay, then Ricky and a group of dudes, they're not like his literal frat brothers, but I wanna say his metaphorical frat brothers, right? Some of whom are lobbyists, some of which are like his, you know, highly placed buddies in government their group chat leaks, it's 889 pages. It's leaked by uh, the Puerto Rican Center for Investigative Journalism. And in this group chat is everything you do not ever want to hear a fucking politician say. The things that got the most press was that uh, he was horrifically uh, homophobic and misogynistic. He also, him and his buddies, joked about feeding um, the dead of Maria to vultures. They also talked about how it would be really great if there were no more Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. Their strategy is pretty clearly to like make as many Puerto Ricans as possible leave and sort of turn it into, you know, luxury resort island. He made fun of his own supporters uh, as fools. He said like really like disgusting, you know, things about people's like, like his own supporters' bodies and and looks. Uh, He admitted to corruption on the tape. He uh, talked about having like, Twitter trolls and stuff. I mean, just every possible thing that was like mendacious and vile and contemptuous, he, him and his buddies said. And when um, Puerto Ricans heard about this, Puerto Ricans of all parties, including his party, this is very important, were like, no, this is, this is indecent. And I think about that, right? Like people saying, no, this is indecent. And I think that there's something that fundamentally differs Puerto Ricans from Americans in saying that. Because as far as I've seen, there is no substantial movement of Trump voters saying, no, this is indecent. Whereas there absolutely was a substantial, I mean, I would say probably half the people in the streets, you know, were, were, were from Ricky's party. And they were saying like, no, this is indecent. You don't speak about us that way. You don't do this to us. Um, people went out on the streets at one, at its height. It was one third of the entire island was out on the streets. It was um, a cross class, cross race, every type of person, uh, you know, from little kids to old people, everything from like masked up anarchist kids who are always, you know, pretty demonized to old ladies banging pots and pans were on the street and saying like, no, this is not going to stand. And the protests are often called nonviolent. And it is true that the protesters were Nonviolent. But the police were brutal. I mean, the police tear gassed the hell out of people. They beat the crap out of people. Fortunately, they didn't, you know, didn't murder anyone. But they were very violent. But you know, Puerto Ricans were uh, very brave. Also, astoundingly creative. One moment that I always remember is uh, a lot of Puerto Ricans in the country. They have horses. You know, it's just a common, common thing. And. The horse riding clubs organized and hundreds of dudes rode into the capital on fucking horseback (laughs) to like say, Ricky, get the hell out of here. Right. So, you know, when you have this level of non-cooperation in a population and when you are a local mendacious colonial administrator without your own air force, uh, um, you generally, you know, you kind of have to step down. Ricky held on so long to power, in part so that he could sign over a bunch of, um, he could basically change a bunch of laws, making it easier to gentrify and sell Puerto Rico, and also probably so he could, you know, finagle a pardon for himself. Then, after Ricky stepped down, uh, the sort of utter emptiness of his party and of the Puerto Rican political class was realized in that there was this sort of vapid jostling for power by various you know corrupt non-entities the woman who's in charge of Puerto Rico now is a corrupt non-entity named Wanda Wanda Velasquez however the movement this amazing street-based movement that led to like the first ouster of a governor in Puerto Rican history uh, that's Morphed into something really interesting, which are these assemblies that are called the Asambleas del Pueblo, Asambleas del Pueblo, which are—they're not like crappy Occupy Wall Street assemblies where it's just everyone blathering. These are actually they're public assemblies, but they're like super organized and everyone exchanging ideas about how to um, how to organize, how to uh, decolonize. They're happening all over the island and um, also in New York City. I've been at both of the ones in in New York. And um you know, amongst, amongst the Puerto Rican community in New York, and I don't know, it's it's really beautiful. It's really, really beautiful, and finally feels that um, people are thinking of new solutions to the horrors that are going on in Puerto Rico. And um, one of the things that when I was talking to my dad about it is that because Puerto Rico uh, Puerto Ricans have US citizenship, the kind of escape valve have, has always been that if, if you just you know couldn't deal, with um you know the poverty or you know the corruption or the limited prospects in puerto rico you could go to new york right and that sort of you know kept kept a lid on things you know because you could could leave easily but right now young people in puerto rico are facing an island where because of the actions of america and of the local government there's just like no future for them right like the University of Puerto Rico is being completely gutted and decimated, very deliberately for no fucking reason except vindictiveness. Um, There aren't jobs. They were trying to lower the minimum wage for people under 25. Even the Puerto Rican sales tax is being appropriated to like pay off bondholders. You know, not. It's just the islands being gutted, so there's no, there's no going to be no future for young people except maybe I don't know, like slinging drinks for gringos. And by the same token, this is a moment that's like the most anti-Latino moment in um, the U.S., like in my, in my memory, certainly, where like the idea of going to the U.S. is not necessarily some great prize, right? And so a lot of young people in Puerto Rico now, they're like, I don't wanna to go to the U.S. I wanna stay in my home, I wanna stay on my island and there's nothing to lose, so I'm gonna fight for this.
0: Thank you for sharing all of that. Do you see between the anti-colonial movement in Puerto Rico, and the anti-colonial and anti-corruption movements happening throughout the Middle East and North Africa, um, both in 2011 and currently um, in Sudan and Algeria. Do you see like any connections there? Any sort of similarities between those like shared movements?
1: absolutely and also i would say that amongst puerto rican radicals there's a lot of uh, palestine solidarity um that's something like if you go to those spaces you will see like palestinian flags you'll see um you'll see you'll see the iconography and i also i mean there is an arab community in puerto rico also and i've like i saw some like badass arab women at the protests so um there, there are just those physical links but also i mean one of the slogans of the puerto rican protesters it was, uh, somos mas y no tenemos miedo. That means uh, there are more of us and we're not afraid. And when I would hear my Syrian friends talking about like breaking the wall of fear, right? Um, by going out to the protest, it, it reminds me of that. Also, one of the um, things that people were really calling for in Puerto Rico, in addition, you know, to like taking this shitty fiscal control board out, in addition to like cleaning the house of corrupt politicians, is they're talking about dignity. And their, their dignity is something that had been violated, but they were rediscovering again. And they, they talk about like when a people like rediscovers its dignity, you know, when a people fights for its dignity. And I think about um, the role of dignity in um, the revolutions in the Arab world and of those movements, uh, which is something that very often uh, I feel like wasn't, didn't really come through in the American media. Like they would use the word freedom, but not, not dignity, you know? I mean, I think that that spirit is very similar. The difference is that it, in Puerto Rico, it is just nowhere near as violent. Uh, the state, because it's, you know, it's a colony, has not, and I, I hope cannot, crack down on the protests with the violence that a Bashir or that an Assad or that a Sisi can. I mean, the, the protest movements in the Middle East were just met with open, constant, cold-blooded murder and torture.
0: Last year... Um, you were actually the artist in residence at the uh, NYU Kevorkian Center for Near Eastern Studies. And your uh, seminal project of the semester had to do a lot with this kind of idea of the of memory throughout the world. Um, Can you speak a bit more about that and maybe how that also relates to these anti-colonial movements, both in Puerto Rico and in other places throughout the, throughout the world?
1: Sure, uh, so my project, It was about um, the legacy of Al-Andalus in New York City. I think probably like many Jews, like many Latinas, and honestly, like many rootless cosmopolitans throughout the world, I have, you know, a very uh, romantic view of Al-Andalus, though, of course, I I know of its real history, you know, as an empire as well. And so there is this Puerto Rican poet uh, named uh, Victor Hernandez Cruz, who wrote a uh, book of poetry called *In the Shadow of Al-Andalus*, and and he's like he's a poet who was you know born in Puerto Rico, grew up like super working class in New York, and he married a Moroccan woman, and I think he lives um, most of his time in Morocco right now. And it was this book of poetry about the legacy of Al-Andalus that like still lived in New York, in like, you know, the Bronx, right? Like in like, you know, New York neighborhoods and also in in Puerto Rico, like in the way people sang and the way people acted, even the architecture of buildings. And I was reading uh, that by Victor Hernandez Cruz. And then I was reading uh, Mahmoud Darwish's, you know, series, um Asher Tahat al Andalus. See how bad my pronunciation is? It's like a blight against Arabic. So, you know, 11 11 stars over Al Andalus. And there is this line in it that just stuck with me, which I'm not going to quote in Arabic, but in English it was, We will search for our history in the margins of your history. And so I got this idea that I wanted to do something that was like how Al Andalus persisted in, in New York. And in part because, you know, Al Andalus. And also the Reconquista are things that uh, live in many people's cultural memories. It's not It's not something that solely belongs to Jews or people from Spain or Arabs or Latinos or American Black people um, or any of the other you know, cultures that participated in Al-Andalus. It belongs to kind of all of us, right? We all have different ideas of what it was. And so many communities whose pasts intersected with, with Al-Andalus live in New York now, Right. It's something that lives in the memory of Sephardi Jews. It also is something, you know, obviously, uh, you know, North African community, Syrian community, um, you know, even Yemeni community. It, it's something that there's a strong memory of. But it's also something that American Black people have um, a very strong and, um, and different understanding of. And it's also something that Latinos, you know, who are you know, the products of Spanish culture, you know, partially have a very different understanding of. And so I I decided I would trace all of these different understandings that and um what I did with this with these brilliant students that I worked with is we we each kind of explored, yeah, trace memory of Al Andalus in New York and we did like an art project on it and I put it all together in um in a zine. Now, I've always thought Al Andalus is something very interesting to think about in a decolonial perspective, because Al-Andalus was, a col- was colonies, right? Al-Andalus was when, um, when Abdul Rahman al-Dakhil, is it Abdul Rahman al-Dakhil or Dakhil? You, um, when he, um, the last heir to the Umayyad empire, right? He went into, um, you know, into Southern Spain and he built Cordoba. When Tariq bin Ziyad, you know, the great Berber general, you know, for whom Gibraltar is named, I mean, he, he attacked and conquered, you know, Visigothic Spain, right? So, Al-Andalus was originally, you know, it was an imperialist project by by Arabs and North Africans in, um, you know, in Spain. However, in those eight hundred years that um, there were Spanish that that there was an Arab um, presence on the Spanish Peninsula. It was also one of the most glittering fucking cultures of the medieval world. My God, you know, um, Cordoba, you know, it was the jewel of the world. I mean, this this was a place of the most sophisticated architecture of medicine, of art, of poetry, of philosophy. Um, Even though the Convivencia was always a little bit, um, it was never quite the, uh, the Disneyland version, you know, that it's made out to be. And there were many tensions in it and, you know, a lot of conflicts. There was Convivencia, which is certainly more than you could say for most of the rest of the medieval world. And the Reconquista, right the Reconquista, what does that mean? It means the reconquering. so the Reconquista was framed as a "get the foreigners out of Spain. however, by that time, eight hundred years later, who was the foreigner who was who was the native? It was impossible to make to say that the Reconquista is a movement that's a decolonial movement. It was not right It was actually like a violent a violent movement of um you know, religious bigotry that bought the Inquisition, that ethnically cleansed Jews, and that, you know, eventually ethnically cleansed even the Christian descendants of Muslims from the Spanish peninsula. So I've always found, um, I don't know how I would put um, Al-Andalus, the Arab conquest of Spain, or the Reconquista into a colonial-decolonial binary. I think it actually falls outside and subverts the entire thing, because I think, eventually, who is the colonizer and who is the colonized after so long, especially when everyone is intermarrying?
0: Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to say for the listeners?
1: So I'm obviously a Shilda author, so I'll say I uh, have brothers of the gun. And um, mostly I would like to say that uh, working with Marwan Hisham, was one of the most extraordinary experiences, probably, I mean, no, let me be straight up. It was probably the most extraordinary experience of my artistic career. Um, We wrote Brothers of the Gun together as equals. Um, Every single sentence is that is something that we argued over and um, that we we fought over. And I, I think that both of us created something out of this process that is better than either of us could have ever achieved on our own. Um, He also art directed every single illustration in that book. And I feel that these um, illustrations, though it was my hand that drew them, are ours. I don't feel that they're like just mine alone. And I think that experience of working with someone um, as brilliant as him and someone who um, is as uh, unique as him. and And what I mean by this is he's someone whose perspective is utterly his own and unbound completely by any sort of like pre-made ideology or faction was um, something that uh, that utterly shaped me and that I'm always grateful for. So I guess I'm going to end this with a shout out to Marwan. You know, thanks for being my friend and collaborator.
0: That's lovely. For the people listening and who want to get more of you, where can they find you on the Internet or in books or wherever? Um, where are you most accessible?
1: Um, well, I'm on Twitter, uh, which I hate at, mo- at Molly Crabapple and my website is mollycrabapple.com. And uh, both of my books are on Amazon, but fuck Amazon. So uh, um, if you want to buy Drawing Blood or Brothers of the Gun, I I suggest your local indie bookstore. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.
2: You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at, at hour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.